scripture reading from Philippians 2, uh, verses 5 to 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that a name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jeremy. Um, We are looking at the book... Paul's letter to the Philippian church, and we're in the sixth part of a 13-part series, and we're looking at what it means to live out of the fact that we are rooted and established in Christ's love for us, that we are, that as Jay prayed or or introduced his prayer with, we are joyful. We have cause to be joyful, and the joy that's uh, ours from being rooted down into Christ and what he's done for us is what Paul's writing about. So today, I want, to, I want you to start by thinking about this. When a friend does something to puzzle you, what do you wonder? When a friend does something to puzzle you, what do you wonder about? You wonder what they had in mind, Right? What did you have in mind when you did that? I don't understand. Why did you do that? And in the same way, our passage begins by telling us what Christ had in mind. And that's what we're going to look at. Um, We're going to look at this morning the mind. We would like, I would like you to have this mind among yourselves. Just as Paul prayed for the Philippian Christians, I would like this for you. That you would have this mind among yourselves, which is already yours in Christ Jesus. Well, what is this mind? What are we talking about? What's Paul talking about? And so we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at the humiliation of Jesus, verses 5 through 8. And we'll also look at the exaltation of Jesus, verses 9 through 11. So let's, let's look at Jesus' humility first. Bear with me for a moment as we think about something theological. Uh, there are theological words attached to it, so let's try to unpack them. There's something called transcendence and there's something called imminence. Okay? Transcendence is popular notion around God in some religions. Islam is a great example where God is transcendent. He's wholly other. He does not stoop to come and be a part of our lives. He does not have to. He's too lofty. He's too high and lifted up. Imminence means God being a part of things. Um, you see this in monism and various some some forms of eastern religion where god is in us or god is there's a force of god so what's interesting about that is christianity is neither of those but both combined god is both exalted high and lifted up above all things above us but he's also imminent that he walks among us that he became one of us to take on the suffering that we deal with and he lived the life that we should have lived And he identifies with us that way. So transcendence and imminence in the gospel is held together. There's a window into that truth here. What do we learn about it? And what I want you to see in the humility of Jesus, first is that Jesus, verse 6, look, it did not count. 
He did not count equality with God something to be grasped at, right? And what do we, what do we mean by that? What does Paul mean by that when he says he did not count? One of the things that you can do, one of the things that came to mind for me that might be helpful in illustrating is the sin of Achan. You know the, old, the Hebrew scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, there's a story about Israel, and Israel is going to, um, through a military campaign under God's direction, and they're not supposed to take or even look at any of the plunder from the battle. So they're supposed to be victorious in this battle, but there are things that belong to these people that are normally, in that day and age, were the, were the uh, results, the spoils of war. And God didn't permit... Israel to take any of those things. But Achan does this. This is uh, Joshua 7, verse 21. When I saw among the spoil, and listen to the way that he describes what he's about to describe. Think about the attention that it took for him to be able to see these things. What did God say? You're not supposed to pay any attention to it. Don't take it. Don't look at it. Don't deal with it. Don't consider it. Right? Don't count it. But listen to the way Achan looks at it. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful coat from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. There are things that you and I consider precious. And those things as Elizabeth was telling us about, are things that we think that we need to be who we are. We only have identity if we have those things. If I only get her to love me, or if I only get him to love me, or if I only have this promotion at work, or if I only get this grade on the exam that I'm trying to pass, then I'll be somebody. I'm not talking here about healthy competition or striving with diligence. I'm talking about taking something that's good, those things, and turning it into an ultimate thing. Something you base your life on. Something that when you wake up at night, it's the thing that you're worried will be taken from you. You've made it too important. You've counted it. Now, what's the richest thing that we know about? It's God himself. And this passage shows us that Jesus didn't count. He didn't do what Achan did. He didn't do what we did. Though he had every right, he had every right to, he didn't count. So there's humility. He didn't count. As our representative man, he didn't count his equality with God something to take advantage of, something to exploit. The eternal son of God didn't make a decision to stop being divine, If you look at our passage, it talks about him giving up, right? Giving over. Here's what it says. He did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and taking the form of his servant, being born in the likeness of men. His not counting wasn't a decision to stop being divine. It was a decision about what it really means to be divine. It wasn't to stop. It shows us what it really means to be godly. The eternal son of God, the one who became human in and as Jesus of Nazareth, regarded his equality with God as committing him to the course he took on your behalf of becoming human, 
of becoming Israel's anointed Messiah and representative of dying under the weight of the world's evil. As you look at the incarnate Son of God dying on the cross, the most powerful thought you should think in is what? As you look at Jesus dying, the most powerful thought you should have is what? This is the true meaning of who God is. He is the God of self-giving love. Look, C.S. Lewis in his children's book, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he gets it right. How does he get it right? Aslan gave himself up in weakness on the stone slab under the knife of the witch. And what happened? His friends were freed from her curse through an older, through more ancient magic, love. And what you should see through Jesus' humility is his love for you. He gives everything up for you, and yet he's victorious over it so that you can be victorious through him. Well, what else do we learn about transcendence and imminence being held together? Remember these concepts that in the, in the religions of the world, they're held apart. God is either transcendent, if he exists at all, they're, they're either, he's either transcendent or he's imminent, but he's not both. Christianity is distinct and it maintains, we maintain that God is both of those things at the same time. What else do we learn from this passage about his transcendence and imminence being held together in Jesus' humility? Well, verse 8, on the cross, Jesus had done what only God can do. There's a 2001 movie called Enemies at the Gate. Have you seen this movie? It's rated R, so I, can't, I won't recommend it <laughs> that, on that basis alone. You have to, if you're going to watch it, you have to be prepared to see violence and other kinds of things. Um, it is World War II, and uh, it's a pretty dramatic story. But there's an amazing scene, if you watch Enemies at the Gate, where uh, there's a young farm boy who's conscribed to go with the Russian army to go and fight in Stalingrad, the, uh, the German uh, oppression that's happening there. And so he's on a train, and he's with the other soldiers on the train. It's kind of quiet. They're a little afraid to go into battle, you know, like the normal fear that you might have with something unexpected. You're not sure what to expect. And then what happens? The train stops. And the train door opens, and it is the most violent chaos you can possibly imagine. A city is being blown up. People are being tossed by bombs exploding right now, torn to pieces. And they are being ordered under gunpoint to go out into the face of that and fight. And the men try to hold back in the train and, and not go off the train because it's so fierce and so awful and so violent and so terrible. It's a stunning scene. If you watch nothing else, look at that scene in that movie. It's so powerful. And what Jesus faced was death. And he ran headlong into the most violent chaos ever. He ran headlong into it without blinking an eye. And he was victorious through weakness so that you could be made strong. So that you could be saved. Now... I want you to know this, humility without boldness, and we'll get to boldness in a second, we're talking about how God exalted Jesus. Humility without boldness is not true humility, it's fear. If you see somebody, we talked in our leadership retreat about one of the things that we hold dear about knowing God. We, you know, our, our, one of our values is to love God, is worship, which means loving God. And so what do we, how do we want to love God? And one of our values is loving people, community. We want to love one another. We want to love those who are outside of our community well. And one of our values is loving the city. Mission, mercy. 
How do we engage the city as those who have been saved by such a, at such a cost? And one of the things we said we wanted to do in loving one another is be able to talk to one another about our sins. Hey, I see this in you and it's repetitive. And I see that it's bringing you down in your relationships and in the way that you think about things. It's holding you down. Will you consider that with me? And that we also want to be responsive when people reproach us, right? That should, okay, let me consider that. I'm going to take a look at that. If you have humility without boldness, you won't go to that person and say what you need to say to them, to love them well. You'll be afraid. And that's not what we're talking about here in the gospel. Also, boldness without humility doesn't work either. It's not the concept we're going to get to uh, when we talk about Jesus being exalted. You need to have, in your boldness, when you go and when you confront one another, you need to have humility when you do it. You can't have pride. Pride would say, don't be a sinner who makes God angry or who's like the rest of the people who would work toward the breakdown of society. Be like us, virtuous people, who don't sin but you know, live, live the right life. What are you doing when you approach somebody like that about their sin? Who are you pointing them to as the record and the standard by which you're helping them to grow in Christ? Is it Jesus or is it yourself? No, humility has to have boldness and boldness has to have humility. They're held together in the gospel. I was listening to Pink's song, Effing perfect. Have you heard this song? That's the sanitized version of it. And the, the, there's, an, there's an amazing... She's trying to do an amazing thing with that. You know why she wrote the song, right? She talks about why she wrote the song. She said, look, I've seen young people giving up their lives, taking their own lives because they have been bullied or they've been looked down upon or they've been uh, discouraged or disparaged or just just really, really treated badly. And they see themselves so poorly. They have such low self-esteem that they're undone. And I want to write a psalm that tries to reverse that. And what she tries to do is she tries to point to a person's boldness. Yeah, I know that you're hard-pressed, but you're perfect the way you are. And as I was listening to this song, I thought, you know, the problem is, is that if you know yourself at all, if you let your friends know you at all, you fail regularly. You can't be that bold. You're going to fail. You're going to fail at loving each other. You're going to fail at telling the truth. You're going to fail at what happens in your mind when nobody's looking. You're going to fail at the things you do when nobody can see you. You're going to fail, just like all of the characters in Scripture fail at being righteous before God themselves in and of their own strength. Pink didn't get that, but as I listened to the song, I listened to this chorus. Pretty, pretty please, don't you ever, ever feel like you're less than perfect. Pretty, pretty please, if you ever, ever feel like you're nothing, you're perfect to me. It's a powerful lyric. And as I was listening to it, I started to weep. You know why? Because in Jesus' humility... Paul talks about us being in him. We're in his humility. So when the Father looks at us, 
And we're thinking those thoughts. I can't do this. Or I'm not lovable. Or I'm not capable. Or I'm not whatever. It's not the way that God speaks to you. The Father speaks to you saying, pretty, pretty, please. Don't you ever, ever feel like you're less than perfect. You're in Jesus. I don't look at you based on what you do. I look at you based on what he's done. And he is perfect. And he coupled humility and boldness. And he is transcendent and imminent at the same time. He was your representative. He bled for you. He died for you. He gave everything for you. So that in him, you're perfect to me. When you hear that song and you hear the Father speaking to you like that, you're getting it. You're getting it. The Lord loves you. He gave everything for you. He was humble enough to do that. But we also learn in this passage about the exaltation of Jesus. Verses 9 through 11. Sorry, I need to get some water. (laughs) I'm thirsty after all that. Quoting pink. All right, friends, if you're Christian, or friends, if you're not Christian, and you've been around and heard about Christians in the church, one of the things you know about is Christmas, right? And another thing you know about is Easter. And you might know about Good Friday. Sometimes there's that thing going on. And you might know about Ash Wednesday. And you see um, uh, some Christians with ash on their head from a service that they've been to. Do you know about ascension? Do you know about the ascension? When Paul talks about Jesus being exalted and being the name over every other name, he's pointing directly to his resurrection. And one of the things we said earlier um, in our sermon series when I first came was the idea that the resurrection is like the detonator for a bomb. Without the detonator, the bomb doesn't work. It doesn't explode its power. Right? In the same way, without the resurrection, your faith in Jesus and his humility on your behalf won't explode in power. When he was here, he could be in one place with a smaller group at a a time. When he rose from the dead, he could send his spirit so that he could be in many different people from many different nations all at one time. One of the messages of Christianity is that God comes. The imminence part is that God, the transcendent one, comes and lives inside of you through your faith in what Jesus has done on your behalf. There's a reality to his presence in your life. You experience his spirit counseling you when you read his word. You experience his spirit testifying to you that you're a child of God. You're no longer alienated, far away, unable to get to God You're brought in as sons and daughters, loved ones. And nothing can take that from you. His ascension allows him to do that. What does it mean for Jesus to be exalted, to be ascended? And I want you to look at, um, there's a biblical scholar named Alec Motier, His name is spelled differently than you pronounce it. It's M-O-T-Y-E-R. He does a lot of commentary work with IVP and some of the other um, great things. He's a great thinker, right along the lines of John Stott, contemporary of John Stott. So if you've read any John Stott, you'll know about this guy. 
uh, he looks at this exaltation of Jesus in his ascension, and he uses these questions. He says, Paul teaches us this about the exaltation of Jesus in the ascension. Who, what, how, why, and to what end? Who, what, how, why, and to what end? Let's look at each. Who? Now, we've already said this, but Jesus from the beginning to the end is who we're looking at, right? Verse 9, what does it say? Therefore, God has highly exalted. Is it you? Is it somebody else? It's him. If you look at this passage, it's all Jesus. He's in place of you in every place. It's him who's being exalted. It's him who's humble on your behalf, right? So... Do your thoughts about your spirituality, think for a moment, close your eyes, close your eyes, think for a moment, think about your spirituality. What's the first word that comes to mind? You got it? First word that comes to mind about your spirituality. Open them up. Was it Jesus? Was is it his effort on your behalf? I praise God if it is, because you're living in line with the truth of the gospel. If it's not, you need to do business with God through the work that he's done. It's only in his effort that you can be made right with him, that you can have intimacy with him, that you can draw near to him without fear. So who? Jesus. What? It's a value judgment. He's exalted. Good and bad are often described in terms of up and down, right? How was your day at work? How was your week at work? Yeah, it was a pretty up week. Made a lot of money, got some good deals. How was your week at work? Oh, it's a pretty down week. We're losing customers. You know, the, the market is strange right now. and things are So up and down are terms that are usually used to describe value. The strange thing about the gospel, and I want you to hear this, the strange thing about the gospel is that the value judgments that we usually use about what's up and what's down are completely turned upside down on one another. So that the way up is down and the way down is to to go up. Right? The small things over the big things. Lord of the Rings. I can't get away without using at least one of these illustrations once in a while. I've been pretty good, right? I I haven't talked too much about... That trilogy, that great, uh, it's a great, if you don't know Lord of the Rings, it's uh, Tolkien. It's actually surpassed, I think, almost every other book in the world for popularity over the duration of time and copies it's sold. It's, a str- it's, it's really intense. There's an intense following for it. And Tolkien was an interesting character. He was, a, he was a scholar in ancient languages. And you know how he wrote the book? He wrote the book through... Uh, discovering ancient roots of words. He knew ancient roots of words. And he would take those roots, right? And he would begin to write the story out of what those roots meant. So when you think about, you know, when you think about uh, Loch Lorien, it sounds kind of magical and light and, and wonderful. When you think about Sauron, he's doing that from language, and he's spelling out the characters much like the roots of the language would, right? So, 
one of the main themes that he brings out, Tolkien was a Christian, and he brings out this very theme in his story of Lord of the Rings. And one of the interesting things you'll see in the movie, um, particularly done well, was Aragorn and the entire kingdom of men bowing to a hobbit. Aragorn is finally crowned as king. Righteous order is restored. He's crowned, and he takes his throne, and his whole kingdom kneels before him. And the hobbits begin to kneel down before him, too. And he runs over to him. He says, friends, not you. You bow before no man. You don't kneel. We kneel before you, and, and everyone knelt before them. The small thing of a hobbit, insignificant race of people living in a small shire, was the thing in the story that participated greatly in bringing hope to the world. In the same way, this value judgment, it's upside down. The way up, the way for ascension is down. And Jesus went there. We also learn... um, Well, let me, let me say this. I did forget to include. In Luke 18, we see this in one of Jesus' own parable. Luke 18, 9 through 11. Do you remember this one? He also told this parable to some who trusted themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt, right? This is boldness without humility, by the way. Okay? Treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed like this. God... I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says this then. You ready? He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. A value judgment, good and bad, turned upside down. The small and foolish things of the world shaming the large and the wise. So we have who, what, how. It's God in action. Who did the exalting? Verse 9. God highly exalted him. Friends, in your spiritual journey, one of the things you need to do is take hope. One of the greatest comforts a a Christian has in our faith is that the pressure is not on our effort, our promises, our ability to complete the things that we've even said we would complete. The pressure is on his promise. And he never fails. He said that the gates of hell won't prevail against his work on your behalf. That there's nothing in heaven and earth, in all creation, height, depth, all of reality that can separate you from his love. Why? Because you aren't the one who secures it. Amen. You should feel an immense pressure rise off of you when you understand that. You've been given all that you've been given. An embarrassment of riches. Because the mighty one has made it so. And no one can stop him from doing what he intends. And he loves you. And he secured you. And if you don't know him that way, he wants to. Go to him. Go to him now. Well, why? 
and to what end? The divine response is the ascension. And it's the divine response not to this or that aspect of the career of Jesus. Not to him turning water into wine. Not to him healing the blind or making the lame walk. Not to one particular aspect or another. The ascension is the divine response to the sort of person Jesus is. The way he looks at things. The way he values things. The way he cherishes things. The principles he observes. His mind. Paul's command to us is be of his mind. Be like this. Be humble and bold, connected together, inseparably. Because that's how they are in Jesus. That's how his character is. That's how he wants to make us. What's all this headed to? I like one author put it this way. It's leading to the universal banishment of all that is incognito about the kingship of Jesus. The ascension proclaims the present reality of a reigning Lord. His exaltation has been long since achieved and remains true for us today. When you get up in the morning, who's ruling? What authority are you operating under to make your decisions, to understand things, to evaluate what's right and what's wrong? Is it because you're in relationship to the living king and relating to him in his authority as king that you're making those decisions? Or does something else have authority in your life? We have a reigning, living, ascended Lord who lives in you by his spirit or desires to. Paul quotes Isaiah 45, 23 here, which reads, To me and me alone, says Yahweh, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. Now, what's interesting about this is that Paul's drawing our attention and attention to his readers in that day that the God who would not share his glory with anyone else has shared it, has shared it with Jesus. Jesus, therefore, must somehow be identified as one from all eternity who is equal with God. It's a fantastic statement of the Trinity. The Trinity is mysterious. We can't get our heads around it, but there are things we do know about it. And this is one of them, that Jesus was God and man at the same time, transcendent and imminent at the same time. Among the millions of people who do not know this, if you belong to God through his work in the gospel, you know it. And you have the great privilege and the great joy, as Jay prayed about, to share it, to talk about it, to apply it to your life, to think it out with others when you don't know how it applies to your life, to encourage one another when you see each other brought down and not remembering it. People, one commentator writes, were shocked beyond belief that the idea that the one true God might be known at last in the person of a crucified Jew. Many people in our world find it very difficult as well. And we might like to ask the reason why. Could it be that we, too, have allowed ourselves to slide into unbelieving views of what deity and divinity consists of? Views that would then make it difficult to fit Jesus into them. If so, isn't it about time we did what the New Testament writers urge us to do? 
and what this wonderful passage poetically invites us to do, to start from Jesus himself and rethink our whole picture of God around him. If and when we do that, we shall find the very picture very challenging. This is a God who is now most clearly revealed when he abandons his rights for the sake of the world. Yes, says Paul, and that's the mind of Christ, the pattern of thinking that belongs to you because you belong to the Messiah. And if you're truly living in him by his kind of life, then the exhortations we covered last week will make a lot more sense. Do you realize what verse 5 says? This mind that Paul's commanding us to, it's already yours. You have every right to think in this way, to apply the gospel to your life. Every right. And unbelief prevents us from seeing that. I'm going to go out on a limb and share a story. I don't know if I should share it, but I'm going to share it anyway. Uh, The Lord has given me discernment for different things over the years that I've been in ministry. And one of those things that he's given me discernment for is when somebody's oppressed through demonic forces. And sometimes as I walk about, those things surface and I'll see them or they'll, you know, they'll say different things. And I was walking in Rittenhouse Square this week and there was a guy sort of minding his own business and when I walked by, he spoke up and he said this. He said, I'm the destroyer and my sole purpose is to destroy and to bring you down to fire. Do you understand me? And when that usually happens, I'm praying a lot because <laughs> I don't want to face that. But I have a Savior who faced that. And as I was reflecting on it and praying as I walked past, I realized, you're a liar. Your sole purpose isn't to do that. Your sole purpose is to glorify God. And you're rebelling against him. And you're doing it as a lie. And you can't take me with you because Jesus descended into fire so that I wouldn't be separated from God. I have a righteous, mighty one who is humble and yet bold, and I'm in him. If it were me on my own, I couldn't stand for the, for the fear of it. But because I stand in the mighty one, we have hope, and it affects in very real ways, in powerful ways, day to day, the way we go about living our lives. Go to him. He's humble. Where else do you find a God who's humble enough to serve you? He who should be served, serves. He loves you. Go to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful. Grateful that you would say to us, pretty, pretty, please. Don't talk about yourself that way. Don't think about yourself that way. Know your your true identity, your new identity, your living identity through my relationship with you, through the work that I've done on your behalf, through being in my faithful son and your faithful servant and representative, Jesus. Lord, we come to you now because of your grace, because you've done it, because the pressure is on your promises, because there's no hope without you. 
we come desperate and we come needy and you meet us there because of your love and your boldness and your humility combined. Thank you for being almighty God and yet moving into the neighborhood to be one of us. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my God, should die for me? Let that be reflected in the way we live our lives this week, reflected in the way we make our decisions, reflected in the way that we learn to love you more, reflected in the way that we love one another, reflected in the way that we look for justice and mercy and work for the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. You love justice and you love mercy and you want us to walk humbly with you. Oh, Father, you've given us the ability, you've given us the right to have that mind. We ask that we would reflect it and that we would, as we talked of last week, live a life worthy of the great calling that you've given to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.